Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Every week I send a, a very brief synopsis of the sermon to the elders. Sometimes it's just a sentence and the scripture text, and it never ceases to amaze me how Pastor Jason week after week, is able to preach the sermon to me by the songs that he chooses for us to sing. The things that we have just sung have prepared my heart to worship through this text. And brother, I, I am thankful for you. Haggai chapter 2, our text this morning is the final four verses of this prophet. As you're finding your place there, let's stand. And we'll read these Final words, this final message of Haggai, and then pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, glorious things you've written to us and a glorious time you have put us in in the history of salvation in that we are able to read this prophecy on this side of the cross. We ask, Lord, that as we do so this morning, you would grant us understanding and love and affection and encouragement in Christ to continue the gracious work that he has called us to as his body, his hands, his feet. Pray, Father, that you would help us to trust in Christ, believing that he will see this building through to the end. We ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. That boy's got an authority problem. There's a couple of different ways you could take that. Uh, one meaning we might witness if we were to take a little stroll down the hall here to the nursery. Because the, the toddler community doesn't know much. They don't know how to use the bathroom appropriately. They don't know how to find and secure food and shelter. But they do know this. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. So that boy has an authority problem means 
That boy's having trouble submitting to the people in charge, and it doesn't really wear off after you leave that stage, does it? Many of us are still struggling with this. There's another sense in which we might understand that statement. That boy's got an authority problem. I counseled a young man years ago who had a corporate job as a project manager, and he was tasked with leading and held accountable for completing an enormous job that required the cooperation of a large number of employees, none of whom reported to him. In fact, no one in the entire company reported to him on the organizational totem pole. He was the low man. And yet, he was the project manager responsible for getting this whole project done. That boy's got an authority problem. That means he doesn't have the authority to do the task that he has been called to do. And that young man was at his wit's end because no one would do what he told them to do. If I thought about it at the time, I would have nicknamed that young man Zerubbabel, and I would have encouraged him with this passage that we've just read. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judea as we read these things. And that may sound like a position of, of great authority, but his authority was one delegated by Darius, the king of Persia. At this point, Judah is just one territory in what is called the province beyond the river. Within that province, there are many other governors of other territories. And both Ezra and Nehemiah note that the people regarded themselves as slaves under Persian rule, and they were right to do so. In a sense, Zerubbabel was just an instrument of the Persian machine. Now, God has called Zerubbabel to lead the people to rebuild the temple, which is a huge task, one for which, humanly speaking, Zerubbabel has an authority problem. How will a governor who is essentially a puppet of the Persian government going to complete this project? After all, if we, if we read these historical books that go along with this text, Ezra, Nehemiah, we find that the people of Judah, they're still surrounded by those who want to oppose their work. We know that Zerubbabel was under the pressure of a potential stoppage of this work by Darius. If you're taking notes, you might write down Ezra 5, verses 3 and following. Ezra 5, verses 3 and following. There Ezra records that other governors from neighboring territories, they came to, to, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the high priest and challenged him saying, look, who, who gave you the authority to build this temple? And then... One of those governors, a man named Tatnai, he wrote a letter to Darius appealing to him regarding the legality of this building project. Tatnai writes to Darius saying, hey, did you know that this was going on? And any human being in Zerubbabel's position with his limited authority would have been concerned that he could not get the job done. He didn't have the authority. He had an authority problem. That is not so different from our present-day context, at least our perception of it. We're building the church in a hostile environment. The world stands against us, both in the form of the culture and governmental powers across the globe, and it appears that the world is winning at times. If you, if you follow the trajectory of our own, our own country, it's not at all outlandish to believe that the faithful proclamation of the gospel will eventually be characterized as hate speech. 
What, what do we do then? Even within the professing world, there are many who are caving to societal pressure on social issues and even gospel essentials. The faithful in the church may feel like the walls are closing in and there is a sense of timidity in our hearts as we go to that secular workplace, trying to build the building of the Lord, trying to build his house while under the authority of other people wondering, do I have the authority to say these things? Is this, is this building going to be built? There's every possibility we just look at the landscape that the powers that be in our places of work and in the government could command us to shut down our mission. What authority do we have to see the mission through in those situations? What authority do we have to build a house if building that house becomes a crime? It's into, the, into Zerubbabel's context, into our context that the Lord gives two words of encouragement in these four verses that we've just read. We're going to consider these things first in the way that Zerubbabel would have understood them, then we're going to come back around and apply them to our context on this side of the cross. So very quickly, how would Zerubbabel have heard these things? The first word of encouragement to Zerubbabel, and which we will then use as, as, as food to encourage ourselves, is this, no earthly or heavenly power can prevent God's intention to build his house. No Earthly or heavenly power can prevent God's intention to build his house. So look again at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go, shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, we've seen Haggai doing this before. He is, he is using language. We should say that the Lord is, is giving him language from the past to create an expectation for the future. The language that he uses here harkens back to the Exodus and its aftermath. With all the chariots and the horsemen of, of Egypt bearing down on God's people. They were, they were surrounded in a sense. They're backed up against the Red Sea. But what does God do? He drowns them in the Red Sea. Kills them all. These verses pull from what we might call the royal Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, which depict the nations foolishly standing against the Lord, standing against his people, standing against the Lord's plan, only to be roundly defeated. These words hearken back to Judges chapter 7 when Gideon led this tiny little band of three men against the Midianites. I'm sorry, tiny band of men against the Midianites. And God caused the Midianites to do what? To turn their swords against one another. The nations have always been in the habit of flexing their muscle against God's people. And to, to human eyes, it looks terrifying. But by using this language from earlier history, God's reminding Zerubbabel, it has never mattered the inherent authority or power of the people over the nations around them. It has only ever mattered who their God is. So here God is saying, just like I have always been victorious over my people, 
And just like the inherent authority and power of my people has never been a factor, so also now you, Zerubbabel, can rest assured this house will be built. No power can withstand God Almighty. In, in broad terms, we could say that these verses indicate that God is going to overcome the nations that seek to prevent his plans. Strength of the nations, he'll, he'll overflow. He'll, he'll overthrow the, the, their pride and glory, which is their chariots, their horses, their armies is going to, going to come to nothing. We can hear echoes of Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8, which reads, Some boast in chariots and some boast in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. God is going to show himself stronger than the nations on behalf of his people. Their plans will fail. He will stand. The message to Zerubbabel is, do not worry. The temple will be built. That's encouragement number one. The second is this. God's chosen servant will accomplish all his will regarding his house. God's chosen servant will accomplish all his will regarding his house. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Once again, the Lord is using language from the past. My servant is, is not a generic phrase. It's a phrase used of David as the prototypical king of Israel. And by applying it to Zerubbabel here, he's hinting that, that, that God's favor for David is going to return to Israel through Zerubbabel, who is in the line of David. And he says, I, I will take you, my servant, and make you like a signet ring. I wonder how many of us have signed any kind of a document this week. Anybody signed any documents this week? Whenever we sign documents, our signature authenticates our agreement with the contents of that document. When we sign a letter, it authenticates our identity as the one who wrote that letter. So my signature is unique, unique, your signature is unique. It, it represents our respective authorities. Nobody else can sign a document on my behalf unless I give them power of attorney. A signet ring is something or was something like a signature. It was a ring with a stone in it on which was carved the symbol of the person who wore it. And it was pressed into clay or, or wax to authenticate that person's agreement with a document or their authorship of a letter. And so for the, the Lord to say to Zerubbabel, I will take you and make you like a signet ring means Zerubbabel will act with the authority of God. The whole, the whole issue that Zerubbabel doesn't have the inherent authority to see through what God's called him to do. To that, God is saying... You'll be like my signet. That is, you will bear my authority. And all of a sudden, Zerubbabel doesn't have an authority problem anymore. The Lord, the Lord gives Zerubbabel a similar assurance in Zechariah 4, where he promises that just as Zerubbabel participated in the laying of the foundation of the temple, so also Zerubbabel will place the top stone on the temple. No power can prevent God's authority from having its way. Zerubbabel is his chosen instrument to lead the people through this project. There is no need to worry. 
that he doesn't have the inherent authority to carry it out. He bears the delegated authority of an almighty God. The temple will be finished. Now, that is how Zerubbabel would have heard these things. He would have been right to do so. But as we have learned and and read in in recent months, Peter teaches that the Spirit of Christ was at work in the prophets of old to testify about himself in texts like this one. So, how are these things more fully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and his church? And how does this message of encouragement reach to us and encourage us in our present context? Well, these things that I'm about to give you are not in your notes, but praise the Lord you have another side to that piece of paper with blanks on it. You can write these down freehand. It's, it's not against the rules. Here's the first one. And we're using the things that we've already seen to piece these things together with references from the New Testament, all right? The first bullet point here is that all authority has been given to Christ. All authority has been given to Christ. Zerubbabel is, is a shadow of the Lord Jesus. That phrase, my servant, that Haggai applies to Zerubbabel. It's a messianic title. It's used repeatedly in Isaiah, particularly in chapters 42 through 53. It applies to Zerubbabel only as a shadow, but it applies to Christ as the substance. And we find it, we find that phrase, my servant, serving as something like bookends on that wonderful passage that extends from Isaiah 52 to 53, where we read about the Messiah who was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. My servant at the beginning of that passage, my servant at the ending of that passage. The New Testament writers apply that to the Lord Jesus and call Jesus the Lord's servant. A lot of commentators are slow to read the prophets Christologically for some reason. And yet they almost universally see this signet ring as a reference to the Lord Jesus. Zerubbabel was in the line of David. He was tasked with rebuilding the house of God. He was given the authority of God for that task. A greater Zerubbabel is coming The ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ, who builds the church. He is the definitive signet ring. Remember what that signet ring means. It's the idea of authority given as a special representative of the one who wears it. Now, that idea so clearly applies to Jesus that if we were to take the rest of our time to look at it everywhere it's found in the New Testament, I wouldn't have any time to say anything else. So I'm just going to give you a quick smattering of this from the New Testament. Where do we find that Jesus has been given the authority of the Father? We find it in places like Matthew 7, 29, where Jesus had authority above the teachers of the law. We find it in Matthew 9, 6, where he had authority to forgive sins. We find it in Matthew 10, 1, where he had authority over unclean spirits. Listen, think about this with me for just one second. Jesus had such authority over these demons. They were so terrified of him that they didn't run from him. They ran toward him and begged for mercy. That 
is uncommon authority, and you see it nowhere else. Matthew 12, 8, Jesus called himself Lord of the Sabbath. John 5, 27, Jesus claimed that he had authority to judge. John 17, 2, this is perhaps more outrageous than all the others. He had authority to give eternal life. All of these things and many others point to the fact Jesus had authority to do things only God can do. Where did he get this authority? It's the question. Well, it was delegated to him from the Father. And we read this over and over in the book of John. I don't do my own will or act on my own authority, but I I heal, I act, I speak, I judge on the Father's authority. That's John 5, 27. John 7, 17 and 18. John 8, 28. John 10, 18. John 12, 49. John 14, 10. John 17, 2. Of course, the most famous declaration we find on the lips of a risen Christ in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the signet ring in the sense that all authority has been given to him by the Father, but there is another sense in which he is the signet ring of the Father, and that is that he carries the identity of the Father. Remember that the signet ring does that as well. It's got a signal carved into it, and that signal repre- that symbol represents the identity of the wearer. It's pressed into clay or wax, and that image represents the identity, the character of the wearer. And we, we read these kinds of things all over the New Testament. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has shown the Father to us. Jesus carries not only the authority of God, he carries the identity, the character of God in every way. He represents the Father and the Father's business, which brings us to the next bullet point that I would like for you to write down. Jesus is an unstoppable builder shaking the nations. He is an unstoppable builder shaking the nations. When we we isolate this text in Haggai from its context, it's very easy to say, well, we're really just talking about here judgment. But the context is God's concern that his house gets built. He is encouraging Zerubbabel to stay the course in building the house by assuring him of success in building that house. 
and he assures him of success in building that house through his promise that he will thwart the opposition of the nations. Okay, so this is not just about judgment. Similarly, opposition would stand in the way of the building of God's true house, the church, us, the body of Christ. But Jesus, as the true signet ring, he is the agent of both building the church and the agent of judgment. And on both accounts, he cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. When we read the prophets or any New Testament text, we want to differentiate between judgment texts and building texts or salvation texts. We want, we want to separate these th two things out because in our minds, we, we think of them as separate things. And we're right to do that. We're right to think of judgment and salvation as different things. And so with, with this text and, and others, what we want to know is, are we seeing a picture of God building his kingdom? Or are we seeing a picture of God judging the nations? But often... We find texts mixing the building of the kingdom with shaking the nations. Jesus frequently accomplishes both in the same act. He frequently accomplishes both in the same act. And that's why we find the prophets and the New Testament authors doing both at the same time. We saw this in Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9, where we interpreted the shaking of the nations to be both judgment and God graciously pillaging the nations to gather building materials, that is, human souls, to build his church. Judgment and salvation, or building the church. Here's a key to making sense of this text as it applies to Jesus. Both the shaking of the nations and the building of the house began with the incarnation of Christ and culminate in his second coming. I'm, I'm going to say that again because it's a long sentence and it's important. Both the shaking of the nations, that is judgment, and the building of the church, the house, began with the incarnation of Christ and culminates in his second coming. Now, regarding what I've just said, that long sentence that I said twice, regarding that, there are a couple of things in that sentence that we accept very easily. First of all, we, we, we easily accept that the beginning of the church began with the events of the incarnation. And when I say incarnation, I mean the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus we easily accept that, that the building of the church began with all of that. It's very clear to us. Another thing that we accept very readily. Second, we accept that the completion of the church and judgment take place at the second coming of Christ. I'll say that again. We accept very easily that the completion of the church and the judgment of the wicked all culminates on the second day. Even with our many flavors of eschatology, we, we tend to agree on those things. Evildoers will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, and the church will enjoy the presence of God forevermore, Revelation 21 and 22. Here's what we don't so easily accept. It's that his reign over the earth and his judgment of the nations began with the incarnation began with the incarnation, but they did. 
They did. They began with the incarnation and they will culminate in the second coming of Christ. And for that reason, in these next few minutes, I'm going to spend more time on the things we don't accept than the things that we do accept. All right? So I want to give you three texts to write down. Three texts to write down. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 2. Joel 2, 28 through 3, 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. John 12, 31 and 32. John 12, 31 and 32. These, these texts are connected. Acts 2 directly quotes this Joel passage. Jesus in John 12 alludes to it. And this is significant because the passage in Joel is a judgment text, a judgment text that both Jesus and Peter in Acts 2 claim has been fulfilled in the events of the incarnation. A judgment text that these two men, Jesus and Peter, say were fulfilled in the events of the incarnation. So let's turn over to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. We're more familiar with Acts 2, and that's why we're going to Joel 2. In Acts 2, we recall the recording of the, 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 the day of Pentecost. You remember the, the sweeping of the Spirit into the place, this mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire, people speaking languages they'd never heard before. It was an absolute spectacle. And there in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter stands up to make sense of it for everybody that's watching. He begins to do that. He begins to make sense of these events of Pentecost by quoting this passage in Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter declares on the day of Pentecost, all these things that you've seen today, people speak in languages that they've never learned, tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind, all of that is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Joel. Now, this passage in Joel is both a salvation text and a judgment text. The entire context of it is very similar to Haggai's shaking of the nations and other prophetic judgment texts. And that's even clearer if we continue reading in Joel. So let's skip down to 3.1, Joel 3.1. For behold, in those days, okay, clearly it's the same context. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. 
So this text that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 from Joel is a judgment text. After that time, Joel says, I'll gather all the nations and I'll enter into judgment with them there. Peter says that these things have been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, just after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And Peter goes on from there to argue from the Psalms. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, he fulfilled God's promise to place the son of David on the throne. And when he ascended to the right hand, he fulfilled God's promise to place all of his enemies under his footstool. See, Peter is quite confident that Jesus right now reigns over all and judges the nations even as he builds the church. This is Peter's take. But what does Jesus say? Let's turn over to John chapter 12. John 12. John 12 records the events of the triumphal entry early in the chapter. Jesus has just in chapter 11 raised Lazarus from the dead. And there is an absolute fury among the Jews to kill him now. They even want to kill Lazarus because Jesus is gathering people to himself so quickly. And so we're getting very close to the crucifixion. This is after the triumphal entry. This is crucifixion week. Look with me, beginning at verse 31, John 12, 31. The Lord says, now is the time of judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now listen to me very closely. Some people would isolate verse 32 from the context to indicate that Jesus is he's gonna, he's gonna draw all people to himself for salvation. And that's right, but the context makes it clear that he is specifically pointing out judgment. Now is the judgment of this world, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Yes, when Jesus is lifted up from the earth on the cross, he's calling people to himself for salvation. But he specifically says here, it's time for judgment. And that same act is bringing judgment upon people. Jesus here is alluding to the same passage from Joel that Peter uses in Acts 2. Joel says, I'll gather all nations and enter into judgment with them there. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world and I'll draw all people to myself. He's using the same language. And we, we, we tend to think of the cross, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost as the beginning of the building of the church. And that's right. It is. But according to Jesus and Peter, it is also the beginning of the judging of the nations. All of that language in Haggai 2 about God shaking the nations, overturning their authority, overturning their thrones has taken place in the sense that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, exercising ultimate authority over all things, building his church and judging the nations. Now, we, we have difficulty grasping this, right? Because we can't see it. Just can't see Jesus in authority over all things. I can't see him judging the nations. Just looks like they're winning. Here's what the author of Hebrews would write to you, dear brother and sister. This is Hebrews 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, You made him, speaking of Jesus, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
speaking about the incarnation there. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, the, the, the author of Hebrews would say to you and I this morning, yeah, we don't see him in authority over all things. We don't see everything in subjection to him. Don't worry about that. He is. He left nothing outside of his control. When we take a bird's eye view of history, an honest bird's eye view of history since the incarnation, we see King Jesus manhandling the nations and pillaging them for the sake of his kingdom. Pastors Rick and John have been preaching through the book of Acts, and we've seen this very thing. What did these brothers name that sermon series? They named it very aptly. It's called Christ's Unstoppable Kingdom. When you look at the, at the big picture of that book, you see that the gospel of the kingdom is an unstoppable train running over all opposition. It's just like what Haggai says. Nothing will stop God's intention to build his house. When the enemy tries to put out that fire, it's like they're pouring water on a grease fire. Everything that the enemy throws at the church only serves to spread the message. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, it shakes and pillages the nations. The Jews, they wanted to stop the church. They utterly failed. The, the church claimed souls among the Jews and moved on to expand its own borders. The Romans sought to stop the church, utterly failed. The church claimed a host of souls among the Romans and continued to expand its borders. Roman Empire is long dead. Church thrives. This is the story of the last 2,000 years. But some of us still, still may be wondering, how is it, though, that, that Jesus is judging the nations even now? It is, it is very similar to how we are justified right now. The Bible teaches both that we are justified right now and teaches that we will be finally and officially justified on judgment day. I've taught this many times. I don't have time to justify it with a bunch of references. It's true. In the same way, those who reject Christ... They're judged right then. They are as good as doomed. And they are finally and officially judged on the last day. And that makes our work in proclaiming the gospel the instrument of shaking the nations. The gospel, the message of the kingdom. It is both a message of judgment and of salvation. You are under the wrath of God. Because of your rebellion against him, your only hope is to repent and, and trust in the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus to save you from the wrath to come. If you surrender to him, to this King Jesus, you'll be joined to his body and participate in the building of his kingdom. If you reject him, you're doomed. 
We preach both judgment and salvation when we share the gospel. And through the centuries, the church has survived and judged the nations in that way. And every time the gospel is preached, someone is either being saved or being judged. Not by us, by the gospel. So we say to the world, if you would survive eternal wrath, cling to Jesus. You'll be part of his body. You'll survive the judgment. Otherwise, you'll suffer judgment forevermore. There's one eternal kingdom. It belongs to King Jesus. When they reject him, they are judged and finally and officially judged on the last day. Jesus is already doing this even now. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. He, He will not be stopped. we drill down a little bit deeper, there's more encouragement to be had. All right. What is our role? One more bullet point. Jesus has delegated the work and authority to us. Jesus has delegated the work and authority to us. All that we've seen already should be encouraging to us. King Jesus reigns. There's zero reason for timidity. We need, we need not be, worry that the mission will be unsuccessful. But remember that we've been, we've been tasked with building the church. And there are beautiful things in the word related to our participation in not just the work, but in his authority. He has delegated authority to us. In a sense, New Testament believers, we are the signet ring of Christ. With the Great Commission, where Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He followed that with, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You and I don't suffer from an authority problem. The command to build is based upon his authority delegated to us. Christ gives a delegated authority to do his work in the kingdom. We see Jesus doing this with his disciples before he even went to the cross. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He gave his his disciples authority to do the things that he had been doing. Crazy things. Preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing diseases. He gave them that authority. Then we move a few chapters later into Matthew. We find in Matthew 16, Matthew 18. He gave to the church the keys of of the kingdom so that whatever the the church binds and looses is bound in heaven. He empowers us then with a measure of his spirit in these things that we call spiritual gifts for the expansion of his kingdom. So we, we have this delegated authority. We are his signet ring in that sense. He also conforms us into his likeness. We find this all over the New Testament. This is the great design of the Father from eternity past. And we can find many references. I want to give you, give you just one. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That is, looking at the glory of Jesus. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As Jesus is the signet ring representative of the Father, so we are the signet of the Son. This is what Jesus meant then. 
in John 13, 20, when he said to the disciples, said to us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives the one who sent me receives the one I send. Let me back up. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We are his body. His, his hands, his feet doing his work, expanding his kingdom, building his house. When we're engaged in kingdom work from pure hearts, we, we act with all the authority of the risen Christ. And just as the Lord said to Zerubbabel, those last words, I have chosen you. So also the Lord has said to every member of his body, I have chosen you for this task. Be strong, fear not, the house will be built. The nation, the culture, it stands against us. Listen, this is nothing new. It always has. It, it, it has never, the culture, the world, never been victorious. The, the, the church has never suffered from an authority problem. Why is that? Because King Jesus reigns. And through his body, the church, he's building the church. Listen to what John Calvin said as a summary application of this passage from Haggai. He wrote, For whenever impediments or difficulties come in our way, calculated to drive us to despair, when we think of the building of the church, this prophecy ought to come to our minds, which shows that it is in God's power, and that it is His purpose to overturn all kingdoms of the earth, to break chariots in pieces, to cast down and lay prostrate all riders, rather than to allow them to prevent the building of his church. It, it has never mattered the inherent authority or power of the people over the nations around them. It has only ever mattered who their God is. And we serve a risen Christ who reigns even now, judging the nations. Let us pray. After we pray, we'll have a, a brief time of reflection before singing our final song. Father, we pray that you would give us heavenly eyes to see the things that you see. And help us to use the Bible as the tool through which we would interpret all things in this world, our own hearts and minds, our own experiences, that we would inter interpret them by the Bible. And when we become discouraged in this world, thinking, feeling as if we are losing or we do not have the authority to finish this work, feeling timid in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, even our own families about how to go about doing this work when there's so much opposition. Father, we pray that your word would fill us with faith and vigor for the work, knowing that Jesus reigns even now. He is an unstoppable builder. He is shaking the nations and always has been. Every time his word is proclaimed, he is saving and judging the nations and all of this will culminate on the last day. 
pray, Father, that you would help us to cherish the privilege of being delegated this work and authority by him. You have, you have given us all the authority that we need to build the church. You are writing the image of Christ on us that we might commend the gospel to the world. So, Father, help us to be strong. Believe that this church will be finished. The body of Christ, universal for all time, will be finished to your glory. We look forward to that day. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.